RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. The world is a better place with insurance. There's no question about it. It allows us as individuals or as corporations or as societies to venture and to take on risks that can enhance the quality of our lives and generations yet to come in ways and at a speed that simply would not be possible without this ability to pool, spread, and diversify risk. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I'm joined by a guest, and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, our guest is Robert Hartwig, and our topic is insurance and moral hazard. Robert is an American economist specialising in insurance. Early in his career, he worked for the National Council on Compensation Insurance, plus a short spell at Swiss Re. Then, in 1998, he moved to the Insurance Information Institute, where he stayed for 18 years, including nine as president. But that came to an end in 2016, when he moved to the University of South Carolina, where he is Clinical Associate Professor of Finance in the Moore School of Business, and is also director of the magnificently named Risk and Uncertainty Management Centre. And for the last year, he has also been on the Insurance Policy Advisory Committee at the Federal Reserve Board. So he knows a thing or two about insurance economics, and that includes the concept of moral hazard, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Robert, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to be with you here, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, you, you studied economics through university and up to PhD level, But at what point did you become interested in the economics of insurance? Well, Peter, it's an interesting uh, sort of progression through my academic career. I started out very interested in statistics. Uh, I wanted to be a statistician. And unfortunately, my university had no such major. So I majored in economics because I could take uh, many courses in econometrics, uh, supplemented by statistics and mathematics. And and then I, uh, my first job out of graduate school was, in fact, as a statistician uh, in a regulatory agency where, in fact, uh, I was in charge of uh, looking at, uh, this may sound quite morbid, uh, but how people died and were injured uh, all across the United States by consumer products. So uh, I was a bit of a grim reaper uh, during those years, but nevertheless, that turned out to be a solid education and transition into the insurance world. And uh, I've never looked back. It's been a rewarding career. Brilliant. And in this episode, we're going to consider what could be described as the dark heart of insurance, the way in which the mere existence of insurance makes the world a more dangerous place. We're going to discuss moral hazard. So let's start with an obvious opening question, which is what is moral hazard? Please could you give us a definition together with a simple example? Well, absolutely, you know, Peter. Think about moral hazard is simply a consequence of the existence of insurance such that uh, because of the existence of the insurance itself, one tends to reduce their precautions they might take to prevent loss. So an easy example that I often give to my students is, I say, you know, many of you drove here to class today and you left your car in the parking lot and perhaps halfway here, you realized that you had not locked the door on your vehicle. And what you might say to yourself is, I don't feel like walking all the way back to my vehicle. And at any rate, it's insured. If it's stolen, 
I'll be compensated for that. That would be a very simple example. Okay, so uh, moral hazard is simply the name given to the observation that having insurance makes us more relaxed about risk. Is that right? And I suppose at this point we should emphasise that uh, moral hazard has nothing to do with morality, at least kind of not directly. Um, the, the, the moral part of moral hazard is, is linked to the word more, as in social or cultural mores. So our actions, our norms, our behaviours, that sort of thing. So w when we buy insurance, um, our behaviour, our mores, they change. Um, and of course, this change in behaviour may be immoral, has the potential to be immoral. For example, if a business burns its premises down to recover on the insurance, that would be an immoral act. But as kind of your example shows, Robert, that the change in behaviour does not have to be immoral. So choosing not to go back to, to lock your car is not an immoral act. So the, the, the moral element of moral hazard is simply referring to kind of behaviour, change in behaviour due to the existence of insurance. Um, but what about the hazard element? Um, well, if our change in behaviour makes us more relaxed about risk, then that is, at least in theory, a hazard to insurers. And as I understand it, this hazard exists in, in two separate forms. So uh, moral hazard that increases the probability of loss and moral hazard that increases the amount or quantum of that loss. Could, could you explain to us that distinction and give us a, a, an example of each? Sure. Essentially, what we are saying here is that the existence of moral hazard impacts uh, insurance-related losses, and that can occur either through the frequency or the probabilistic nature of loss or the severity, the actual dollars or euros or pounds uh, that are involved associated with a loss. And, uh, and so, so I'll give you an example, the example I already gave. The fact that a student might arrive in a classroom only to realize that he had not locked his car and rationalizing that he need not go back and lock it simply because of the fact that it's insured. So that's a zero one situation. Perhaps the car uh, would have, it would have never, it would have been very unlikely to have been stolen if it had been locked. It's somewhat more likely there's a higher probability of loss if the car is unlocked. But uh, where we tend to see uh, the, the second form, as you mentioned, uh, for instance, um, in the United States, it's quite common for people to build uh, large homes in areas that are prone to flooding. And they can do so simply because they can access cheap, poorly underwritten, federally backed flood insurance that is purchased from the National Flood Insurance Program here in the United States. So what this does is it, it, it contributes not only to the frequency side, but it contributes to the severity side of the loss as well. So the, there's moral hazard, as we just discussed, that increases the probability of, of the loss and moral hazard that increases the severity of the loss. Is there a third hazard here, namely at the, the point of purchase? Because just to use an example, you know, if, if I suffer from an illness, I'm more likely to want to buy health insurance. So someone who is ill is more likely to want the health insurance than right. someone who's fit and kind of healthy. So is, is there a case in which kind of people who most want insurance are likely to be the people who present the greatest risk to insurance? And is that not a form of moral hazard as well? What you are describing is adverse selection. And so this is essentially a cousin of moral hazard. And it also lies at the dark heart of insurance, if you, if you will. And so, again, adverse selection is something that I describe to my students as the people most likely to use insurance are the most likely to buy it. 
And so this is something that insurers are, uh, of course, aware of. And, uh, and it is something that insurers spend an enormous amount of time and effort attempting to control. And it is controlled through underwriting. That is essentially the job of an underwriter. If a, an insurer makes no attempt or an insufficient attempt to differentiate uh, the riskiness of, of you versus me as a driver, for instance, or one business versus another in terms of how likely it is to have its uh, workers injured or killed on the job, then there's absolutely no question that the company offering the, the, the lowest premium is going to be adversely selected against. There's just no question about this. So the way that this is rectified is through underwriting, which requires what insurers do. Uh, insurers collect enormous amount of information, tabulate it, analyze it statistically, and use that to assign an appropriate price for a particular category or class of risk. And uh, that is where many people in this industry are actually employed. And so it accounts for an enormous part of the cost structure of the insurance industry, literally to control this issue of adverse selection. So uh, that's how insurers deal with adverse selection. How do they deal with moral hazard? Well, uh, moral hazard is dealt with in in a variety of ways. So Let me give you a very simple example. Virtually all policies contain deductibles. Okay, so in the instance of my student who failed to lock his car door, uh, again, he might rationalize that I'm not going to bother going back and do it. It's insured. But if that student actually has a $1,000 deductible on his automobile insurance policy, whereby he would have to pay the first $1,000 out of his own pocket, then his incentive is now much more aligned with that of of the insurer. Uh, And then the moral hazard effect is greatly reduced. A way to say this in in sort of common English is to say the policyholder now has skin in the game. And so what we've done is we've aligned the interest of the policyholder with that of the issuer of insurance, the issuer of the policy, the insurer itself. But also intrinsic within an all insurance policies are certain doctrines or principles uh, for instance, a, um, there are at least three principles or doctrines in policies that, that are designed to contain control moral hazard. The first one is the principle of indemnity. And simply what that means is you cannot profit from a loss, that you can be made whole by your insurance. You can be made partially whole by your insurance, uh, but you can never be paid more than the actual loss. Uh, if that were the case, then the incentive would be to commit the fraudulent acts just as you suggested. Uh, I could uh, intentionally burn down my home or uh, damage my car in order to collect uh, the insurance uh, on it. The, uh, another would be uh, the principle of insurable interest, okay, which means that essentially there must be some logical connection between you and what is being insured. In other words, in this case, you must stand to suffer a loss. You have the probability of suffering a loss. So, Peter, I cannot take out a life insurance policy on you because uh, I have no financial consideration with you. I mean, I asked my students this just in the past week. Uh, What would be the incentive to you if you had the opportunity to take out a life insurance policy on me? They answered correctly. I'd have the incentive to kill you. So, uh, so that is very much, you could say, you know, that would be a very dark heart uh, of insurance <laughs> if that were allowed. And there are some other principles in there, uh, principle of subrogation, for instance, if, um, 
my insurer pays me for damage to the vehicle, I cannot then on my own go after the negligent individual. My insurer is allowed to do that. The principle again being that I cannot profit twice. I cannot be reimbursed by insurer and then go seek reimbursement from a third party for the same event. So there are, are, are many of these uh, sort of safeguards or guardrails put into place uh, that attempt to limit moral hazard. And, and presumably there's kind of uh, policy wordings as well can be, so you can have exclusions. So in, in your, I mean, it probably doesn't work with motor insurance, but, but in your example, you could exclude a situation where a, a car is left unlocked, for example, there, there might be no cover. Uh, in that situation, or, or, or where the insured acts recklessly, perhaps. Well, exactly. So, so certain behaviors are, well, I'll give you a good example. Uh, going back to life insurance, in the case, certainly in the United States, um, in general, um, we don't consider moral hazard to be a huge problem in life insurance, but there's one exception. So uh, there is a suicide exclusion in life insurance policies that runs the first two years of a policy. So uh, what this does is this reduces the incentive of someone who's contemplating taking their own life but would feel bad about leaving their family in uh, financially poor condition. Uh, what this does is it eliminates any coverage for an individual who uh, has recently taken out a policy. The policy will not pay out. Um, now, moral hazard is, is generally regarded as being a bad thing something which increases the risk for insurers. But, but isn't, isn't there an argument, uh, Robert, that the whole point of insurance is to enable people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do? So, for example, earlier this year, I went to uh, Brazil, to the Amazon, for a holiday to kind of do, do a bit of bird watching. Now, I would never in a million years have done that without travel insurance. So, so the existence of travel insurance caused me to change my behaviour, which is a classic moral hazard. But in this case, it was a good thing. So isn't moral hazard the whole point of insurance? Well, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Uh, moral hazard is an inevitable consequence of the existence of, of insurance. However, it, uh, again, it can be uh, limited to a very significant extent. If we think about insurance stepping back a bit, Insurance has enabled, along with uh, the banking system, has allowed the diversification of risk in a way that uh, you know people just a few hundred years ago uh, couldn't possibly have imagined. So uh, it was would have been simply too much for you to assume the risk of going to the Amazon uh, without the existence of of insurance. But in the same way, it might be simply uh, too risky for uh, British Airways to fly its airplanes without the existence of, of insurance because of the potential for billions of dollars of, of loss in the event that a plane is crashed and the, uh, the, the passengers are all killed. The same thing with uh, shipping. If we go to the old days of Lloyd's in the late 17th and early 18th century, we can certainly think about that these transoceanic voyages to the New World, which were exceptionally risky during this period of, of time, uh, probably would not have the, the global commerce wouldn't have flourished to the extent that it had uh, without the existence of insurance. And, uh, and part of the reason why uh, this also exists, you know, Peter, getting back to the dark heart theme, which I, which I really like, I'm, I'm imagining us having this conversation sometime in the Middle Ages, um, <laughs> you know, but um, 
uh, it, it relates to, you know, concepts such as risk aversion. We as humans are risk averse. We need something that allows us to feel confident uh, about going somewhere we don't completely understand, going over the horizon, going over the mountain, you know, uh, investing in technologies that, uh, uh, that are promising, but also potentially risky and have downsides as well. So what insurance does, it allows us to take those calculated risks, uh, and that's what they are. They're calculated risks, not foolish risks. They, are, they're, they aren't fool's errands. They are calculated risks uh, in which investors are willing to assume the other end of this bargain, and it allows society and, and technology uh, to, to move forward in a way that it otherwise uh, would struggle to do so. In effect, insurance says, kind of, let me take that risk from you. Um, so a bad thing happens, but we don't feel the consequence, or at least the financial consequence of, of that bad thing happening. So uh, it seems to me a kind of insurance breaks the chain of cause and effect. Uh, and, and is that not fundamentally kind of the, the basis, the, the root of, of the concept of, of moral hazard? Because as individuals, insurance means that we become increasingly oblivious to risk. Um, and fundamentally, isn't that a bad thing? Well, yeah, I agree with you. It, uh, it, to not be aware of the risks around us is fundamentally a, a bad thing. Uh, we have evolved as human beings over the course of hundreds of thousands and, in fact, millions of years to be able to ascertain and react to the risks around us. But it has always been the case that it is human nature to attempt to insulate yourself against risks in one way, shape, or form. And what I want to try to do is separate right now is, um, is, is the fact that there are many ill-advised risks which are assumed today by individuals and they are assumed by corporations in part because the ordinary insurance mechanisms that would seek to essentially diminish the effects uh, of moral hazard are oftentimes diluted frequently by government policy. So I already made an example uh, earlier on, gave an example of flood insurance in the United States, which is heavily subsidized by the government. So effectively, I can buy, uh, I can build a home in an area uh, known to be prone to flooding and the consequences of which I know will not uh, be excessively expensive for me because I know that I will be able to buy flood insurance from the federal government. So the very fact that that insurance exists is a function of a government program. In general, uh, the private sector in the United States has decided they don't believe that this risk is, is insurable uh, for, for most uh, individuals. And that not only will it, does it exist, but it exists at a subsidized rate. So what I've been able to do is cloak myself in a government subsidy, if you will, that shields me in part or largely, and in some cases completely, from the potential economic consequences of my decision. You could argue that the tens of billions of dollars of disaster aid that are handed out in the United States and in other countries as well to individuals, again, who often knowingly and willingly exist and live and move to these areas is also uh, contributing to the moral hazard problem that we have. And so Florida is, is case in point for this. 
Florida absorbs more reinsurance capital than any uh, place on planet Earth. Uh, but, uh, and so that's one thing if it's private capital, but it's another given that, again, in that state, it absorbs an enormous amount of flood insurance subsidies. Uh, and the state itself runs an insurer and it runs a reinsurer. Okay. And neither of which are run on an actuarially sound basis. Okay. So, uh, so what that does is, is it incentivizes individuals to take on risks that they would otherwise not take on if they were fully responsible for them. Or even if uh, these markets were fully converted to private insurance, the price would be much, much higher. And what it would do is it would incentivize homes being uh, built to uh, a higher standard to withstand hurricanes, being built on higher ground, uh, for instance, uh, perhaps not building at all in certain areas, to invest in seawalls and other forms of mitigation that might prevent loss. So I, I, so I, I want to make that distinction between the fact that, yes, if we look around the world and we say that insurance is potentially partly responsible uh, for the, the existence of moral hazard and the fact that people are exposed to more risk than they maybe otherwise would be, a substantial share of that is actually associated with distortions in insurance prices that are essentially inserted into insurance markets by government policy. So do you think there's an argument that the modern world needs more risk, more consequence, specifically, in, you know, particularly in that, that example that you've just given, kind of, and therefore less insurance. Do, do you think having less insurance in certain situations would actually improve our relationship between risk and cause and effect? I, I, I think that uh, the, the world could probably use more insurance, but that insurance needs to, to take into account the full actuarial consequences associated with the act that is being insured, uh, say the construction of property in hazardous areas. What needs to happen is while insurers have taken great care to attempt to control the effects of uh, moral hazard and adverse selection in policies, it is very often diluted or, or sometimes eliminated by government policy. So, so left to their own devices, um, an insurer will be very glad to write a policy on the coast of Florida if it can charge a risk-appropriate premium. So, you know, it's often said there's, uh, uh, there's no such thing as a, as a, you know, as, as a bad insurance policy, just a bad price for that policy. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I believe that. Yes, yeah, certainly there are risks that are completely uninsurable, probably war, uh, you know, nuclear contamination and, and these kinds of things. But um, if you were to look in the United States and say, what are the major contributors to the moral hazard problem that we have uh, in places like Florida, but also in areas prone to wildfire like California, it's not the existence of insurance offered by the private sector. It's the existence of, of government subsidies and programs that mitigate the, uh, the ability of insurers to require individuals and businesses to keep skin in the game. Um, and let's move on to the climate crisis now. You've mentioned wildfires and hurricanes, which, um, I mean, what relevance do you think moral hazard has to the climate crisis? And so, kind of, yeah, listen to this as an argument, Robert. Um, by continuing to insure the fossil fuel industries, insurance in the way in which we've discussed, it sort of enables uh, climate change. And that, in turn, has the potential to generate huge losses 
for the insurance industry and therefore to make parts of the world uninsurable. So could it be argued, Robert, that the greatest moral hazard facing insurance today is the existence of insurance itself? Yeah, I would I wouldn't really agree with that because history is full of examples uh, whereby you could argue that the existence of the insurance itself creates an issue for the insurance industry. Let me go back 120 years or so at the advent of the uh, the automobile. Okay, insurers uh, were insuring companies like Ford and General Motors or Jaguar, whoever it might be, and so yes, they insured all of these uh, companies which produced automobiles, which many of which were involved in accidents, causing uh, severe losses for insurers, both in terms of damage to vehicles, to property, and to lives and injuries. So you could uh, make an argument for, uh, on the other hand, there's been a great deal of utility associated with motor vehicles in their 120 or so history uh, on, on the planet. Uh, many of us would be loath. Uh, to give up our our motor vehicle, despite all the negative externalities that are associated with uh, with it, uh, even if we uh, even if we went to a fully uh, electric vehicle world, other examples would include uh, in- insurers have uh, insured uh, many industries that uh, pollute uh, substances other than uh, carbon dioxide. So, for instance, asbestos is a good example. Asbestos and environmental losses nearly sank Lloyd's of London, yet it would be difficult to argue that the humans didn't somehow benefit from many of these inventions that gave rise to the pollution. This is where this concept of negative externalities comes in for economists. So how do you solve that problem? This intersects with climate. That is the solution to the climate crisis forbidding insurers from insuring carbon-emitting industries, or is it to develop an appropriate price for carbon such that markets will determine how much value uh, there is to emitting that marginal ton of carbon uh, in, into the atmosphere. So it is true that uh, in the United States and in Europe, there is a question about whether insurers should continue to insure carbon-emitting uh, uh, industries. At the end of the day, what in- insurers have, in my view, a-, a responsibility to do, and they do have responsibilities uh, is to ensure, in the case of climate specifically, is to ensure that uh, there is an orderly transition from where we are today to what many people call, uh, uh, you know, think about as zero carbon somewhere maybe perhaps in in the mid-century as, you know, we've seen in the last few years with the war in Ukraine and, and uh, uncertainty and political uh, uh, geopolitical issues in the Middle East, it's going to be a bumpy transition. Uh, at, at this point, the best thing insurers can do is, is to be there and provide an essential resource associated with that transition. Part of that transition involves uh, investing in uh, or insuring um, and perhaps also investing in uh, green technologies, renewable technologies uh, around the world. And it also involves making sure that the, the transition is, is not one whereby, whereby the global economy is derailed simply because insurers refuse to insure oil tankers or offshore oil rigs or pipelines uh, or, or what have you. I will also say one other thing, Peter, it, in my view on this, it's a bit of a slippery slope. 
ICANN uh, in the United States or ICANN uh, elsewhere um, find uh, people who will say insurers perhaps uh, should not insure companies that produce fatty, salty, sugary snacks uh, because of the obesity crisis we have, which is costing lives and uh, many, many billions of dollars. I can find others who would be upset with the pharmaceutical industry and the agricultural industry and, and just about any other industry that you imagine. So it, it, it becomes a very, very slippery slope once you uh, begin to legislate uh, who insurers can insure and who they can invest in. I mean, that, that's, that's an interesting one because you, the, the point you make there is that you know, insurers should be careful to start, you know, to, to be careful to avoid making moral decisions where those decisions are better made by others, particularly government. So in that sense, you know, we're talking about moral hazard and we've already explained that moral in that situation isn't morality, but yet somehow we've ended up talking about morality, uh, which is that the, the, the impact of insurance does have all these other impacts on society, which are largely good, but are not necessarily good. So it, it is insurers role to be morally neutral and simply to ensure whatever is put before them or or are insurers obliged to kind of uh, at least make some moral decisions going forwards well insurers uh, generally and historically speaking uh, their operations tend to follow uh the uh, decisions they tend to be driven by decisions that are uh, are are made by individuals and by investors in marketplaces um, as well as, as, as you mentioned, as well as decisions that are made by government. In other words, public policy. So insurers tend not to violate. They make every effort to not violate public policy. So, for instance, uh, they're not going to allow the sale of life insurance policies on individuals to whom there is no insurable interest. Again, uh, that does create uh, that it, that would be a problem in terms of public policy in the sense that, as we talked about earlier, that creates an incentive for you essentially take out a policy on a stranger and then and you have an incentive to therefore try to collect on that policy by killing it. And insurers aren't going to venture uh, down any kind of roads uh, like that. Insurers also, for instance, uh, you know, in the EU, the EU decided maybe a decade or so ago that it was not going to use gender as uh, underwriting criteria in most types of insurance. It's allowed in the United States uh, and insurers continue to use it. And but it is not allowed in the EU. And so they don't use it. So that's a good example of where they follow public policy, uh, but they don't make it. Um, so it, what, it, what insurers, where the sort of, if you want to think about it as moral, um, you're doing the right thing, what the, the, the right thing for insurers to do, and this is what they spend a lot of time doing, is to make sure that the, the rates that applies to a particular risk is, uh, it contains all the information uh, that allows us to build uh, and make the rate as accurate as possible uh, and that the rates do not have some sort of kind of cross subsidy associated with them, but that the rates themselves also provide an incentive to reduce loss. So if you're, you're in an auto accident, uh, you're going to pay more for your insurance in the next uh, year or two or three. If many of your workers are injured or killed on the job, you're going to pay more uh, because of that. And so this is where I think insurance is very much on the high road. 
it, it has the built-in intrinsically a mechanism uh, for rewarding good behaviors in terms of those behaviors that reduce the frequency and severity of loss, but penalizing those that increase costs to the system. To me, that is the appropriate role uh, for insurers, irrespective of the risk that they are suing, whether it's insuring oil tankers uh, or whether it's insuring lives. I did say at the outset that we'd be looking into the dark heart of insurance, and uh, I, th I think we've done that. I, so thank you very much, Robert. That's fantastic. But, I mean, to finish kind of the, the, the main body of the questions, I think we should remind ourselves of, of the good that insurance uh, can do, does do, will do, has always done, will always do. As the great underwriter Stephen Catlin says in his book Risk and Reward, in the context of, of natural catastrophes, it has been proven time and again that when a large portion of a loss is insured, there is less human deprivation, faster economic recovery and a lower cost to the taxpayer. Um, is that a view that you subscribe to, Robert? And, and on balance, would you say that insurance makes the world a better place or a more dangerous place? Yeah. So first of all, I absolutely agree with uh, Stephen's comments there. Uh, there's absolutely no question about it that uh, properly done, insurance does reduce human a deprivation and in a measured in a wide variety of ways, uh, it does enable uh, faster, more robust, complete uh, economic recoveries. Uh, and again, with less of a burden to the taxpayer. Again, we mentioned earlier on that many of the problems with uh, with insurance are the fact that we wind up with government programs that actually interfere uh, with the insurance markets themselves and and actually create a much greater burden uh, for for the taxpayer. But uh, absolutely, uh, no question about this, but the world is a better place with insurance. There's no question about it. It allows us as individuals or as corporations or as societies to venture and to take on risks that can enhance the quality of our lives and generations yet to come in ways and at a speed that simply would not be possible without this ability to pool, spread, and diversify risk. And kind of mathematically, statistically, that's, at, that's what is at the heart of insurance. It's almost, when you think about it, it's a, it, it's a, it's a mathematical miracle that this actually works. Uh, and this is what enables modern economies. Uh, and uh, if you study history, uh, you'd see that the pace of economic growth for most of human history was moved at an absolute glacial pace. And in fact, didn't move at all uh, very, very often. People had, uh, even if you go back to the, the Middle Ages or before that, people had no expectation that their children would be better off than they are. So insurance is, is part of what makes a modern society, and we're definitely better off for its existence. Finally, Robert. You are an insurance economist. So how would you sell insurance as a, a topic of study to any young economists who might be listening to this podcast? Well, Peter, you know, I have the pleasure of doing this every day. Uh, and I, 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 what I do is I bring into the classroom uh, immediately uh, kind of the, the sort of fascinating, wild, uh, woolly world of, of insurance um, uh, to, to my students. But there's no segment of the economy, there's no corner of the world, there's no industry, there's no individual, there's no business that whose future isn't some way, shape, or form influenced by the existence of insurance or the lack thereof. And so, and uh, th there are numerous opportunities to appeal to students with a wide range 
of, of intellectual backgrounds who can find some corner, some segment of, of the insurance industry that will no doubt satisfy them and be rewarding economically in, in form of a career, but also intellectually, it will stimulate them and, and, and incentivize them to grow. Thank you, Robert. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll also love our other RPC podcasts, Taxing Matters, Money Covered and The Work Couch. Thank you once again for listening and I hope you have a great day. 